Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Elizabeth Norman is a professor at New York University's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. She is the author of Women at War, the story of 50 military nurses who served in Vietnam, and also the co-author of Tears in the Darkness which was a New York Times bestseller. Today, I've invited Elizabeth to my show because I feel she has another really important story to share with you and one of such resilience. But the book that she's recently written is called We Band of Angels, the untold story of American woman trapped on baton. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you, Corin, for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So why did you choose to write this story, first of all? What compelled you to do that? Well, there were two things. Um, One is that as I was growing up and in school and reading books, I I seemed to always be reading about men and history from men's viewpoint. And I wondered where were all the stories about women? So I was very interested in that. And as I went through my education, I had an opportunity to do some research, and I thought, why not take a look at women who've not only survived, but done quite well in war, Um, because war um, has always been a man's game. And I just wondered how women with our sensibilities and what we bring to um, everyday life, what would happen when women are in killing zones? So I was interested in that, that clash of what I thought it might be. So I did a lot of reading. I did the book on the nurses who were in Vietnam. And then I heard about this group of women and uh, who were in the Philippine Islands who were captured by the Japanese and spent three years in the Japanese prison camps. And they all survived. And I thought, wow, what a story. And nobody had written it before. So I set out to find the women who were still alive talk to them, do all the um, background material, and uh, was able to publish We Band of Angels. And really just to preserve their story and let generations of women know what these extraordinary um, ladies did. Well, when I was reading your book, I was just so surprised, and I really thought about it here ever, you know, December 7th, we talk about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, right? Mm-hmm. And that's so well known. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize that we had people stationed in the Philippines. And that's where this book starts from, isn't it? It is. And and not to criticize anyone, but we always associate December 7th with Pearl Harbor, when in fact there was destruction and attacks and um, suffering throughout the Pacific by the Americans, especially in the Philippine Islands, where it was December 8th because they crossed the international date line. But um, that day, the Japanese basically destroyed our Air Corps in the Philippines. Our Navy was sunk in Pearl Harbor. It was a pretty, it was a horrific day for this country. And these women were just caught up in the middle of this maelstrom. 
And when you say they crossed that dateline, can you explain? So did the bombings occur at the same time as what happened in Pearl Harbor or was it afterwards? Well, they, they occurred, the first bombs in, uh, fell 10 hours after the Pearl Harbor attack started. So it was the same day, but again, the date was a little different because we were going, you know, into Asia and it was, uh, December 8th there, but it was the same day, 10 hours later. Wow. And as I recall in your book, you were talking about how we were the perfect target because they, the Japanese went after all our, our planes because our officers were sitting and having lunch at the time. Yes, I mean, we could have a long conversation about this, but it was just a series of mishaps um, from the military command point of view. They knew Pearl Harbor had been attacked. They were very worried about the Philippines, because that's a heck of a lot closer to Japan than Hawaii. But uh, General MacArthur, who was in charge of all of the troops in the islands, he did nothing. So we left our bombers fully fueled and um, loaded with bombs. The pilots go to lunch that same day. And as they're sitting at lunch, the Japanese Mitsubishi bombers came over and just destroyed um, most of our planes. And, uh, yeah, there were women. The women were right there, some of them, when this happened. Well, and, and it's so incredible. I mean, it's hard to think in 2013, right, where when chicken goes bad, it's up on Facebook instantaneously. And, you know, we're so used to instantaneous information. So I think that is even harder for us to understand Mm -hmm. how people could be so relaxed and having lunch when a bombing occurs. But back then, they also just didn't have information that traveled as fast. I mean, it was a different era, too, wasn't it? It was a very different era. And not only didn't the average... Uh, woman or soldier have the information. But there also was a sense um, among the Americans that Japan would never attack America. They just couldn't believe this small island nation would take on our great country with, with one World War One, And so there was a real uh, denial of the facts. And I kept thinking about what happened um, back then in 1941 with what happened to us with 9-11. You know, we didn't see it coming, and it was another day that, particularly for those of us in New York, you start your day out normally, you're going about your work, and then, bam, your whole life changes in a heartbeat. That's just what happened to these women uh, that day in the Philippines. You know, and, and I think a lot of us can really understand that because, you know, most of us, especially my listeners who are listening, we went through that experience. I mean, that was my first, mm-hmm. I'm 41, so that was my first, mm-hmm. like, adult moment Mm-hmm. where the unknown, you know, the unthinkable happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember growing up and my parents would talk about remembering where they were when JFK was shot. Right, right? yeah. And, mm-hmm. and 9-11 was my memory of I will never forget that day, mm-hmm. right? And I'll never forget afterwards. And I've done a lot of interviews with people, the survivors of 9-11. Um, but I want to go into these women mm-hmm. because I think they have a really compelling story Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful that you shared it. And I have a deep core belief that, you know, being a woman, that I stand on the shoulders of those that have come before me. Mm-hmm. And these women, first off, who were they? Why did they become nurses? How did they end up in the Philippines? Well, um, these women obviously were born in the early 20th century, mid-20th century. They were the daughters of factory workers, farmers. They were just working daughters of immigrants. Um, and a woman at that time did not have many options. If they wanted a career, you could become basically a teacher or a nurse. 
So these women didn't want the hard lives that they saw their mothers leading on farms, and they wanted a little option, so they became nurses, um, which was a very acceptable profession, and a woman could support herself. Um, so they, all of these women became nurses, and they went into the military because they had a little sense of adventure, and they knew that they could travel and meet interesting people. So they were very much like, every other woman their age in America. But there was this little twerk in them where that, that they wanted to, to leave North Dakota, leave Massachusetts, leave where they grew up. And most women of that era were born, married, raised, and died in pretty much the same hometown. So they decided and they tried to get to the Philippines because that was the jewel tour for any American nurse, and all the women were nurses at that point in the military, um, because it was the pearl of the Orient. It was exotic. There were men to meet. There were servants to take care of you. The work was easy. So they signed up to go over there for some excitement and have a good time, and they never in a million years could have guessed what happened to them, that they'd be caught up in a war and wind up surrendering to an enemy. Um, so the Philippines started out with one goal, and then finally, after the war started, they just knew they needed to survive. And what I like about these women and what I like about their story is there was nothing, and they would say this to me again and again, there was nothing special about us, they'd say, nothing. You know, we were just average girls, and we were just doing what we thought was best. So they really are heroines, but they're heroines just the way any of us possibly could be if we had that opportunity. Well, and I, I love that, the fact that they, they believe that there was nothing special about them. They no. were average girls because of that. if they have that resilience, mm -hmm. right, and that grit, and that is possible for them, you know, mm -hmm. what is possible for so many of us? Mm-hmm. It's it's absolutely true, and um, another one thing, one another reason I'm so pleased that this book is um, being published again now because young women, um, and that's whom I'd really like to hear this story. We have um, role models and we have heroines in the political arena, in the entertainment arena, but here's a group. It's just like you and me, Corin. There's there, there really was no difference between them and us except for the generation that they happened to grow up in. You, you know, and I think that's an important thing. Again, that's an important message because one of the the, the manifesto of the show is that there is uncertainty and there's gonna be struggles, but it doesn't need to define us, right? No. And and then how these women could go on and shape their lives afterwards. But I want to go back and can you just tell briefly about, you know, what gave these women such incredible strength to endure what they did through the years of the war? Um, I thought about that a lot um, because I was wondering what happened is, do you, do you want me to just give a little background to the story? So the Absolutely. Um, um, the Japanese attacked the Philippines on December 8th, 7th. Um, they destroyed our military bases, and the Philippines was an American possession at that point. They sunk our Navy. There were no reinforcements to come. Um, and as the bases got destroyed, these uh, American women followed the troops, and we retreated from our bases and from the city of Manila and wound up in a 
jungle peninsula called Bataan or an island, and there was a terrible battle because the Japanese landed troops, and they just wanted to either annihilate all 76,000 Americans or um, get them to surrender. They needed these islands to get to the oil fields of Java. So in December, a few weeks after the first bombs fell, these nurses found themselves heading into the jungle, and there were no hospitals or anything there. They had to set up hospitals literally on the jungle floor and, and be part of a battle that lasted from January until April when the Japanese had so pushed the Americans and Filipino troops to a point where they had to surrender. Um, it was the largest surrender of American forces in our history. These women had a little reprieve because they went over to an island, but by May of 1942, 77 American women surrendered to the Japanese and became prisoners, and they were terrified. They did not know what was going to happen to them. As they said to me, you have to tell readers that we didn't take survival training. We never even had calisthenics. They didn't have uniforms. They had to make their own uniforms. But they figured, you know, what options did we have? If we have to surrender, we're going to surrender, and we're going to do our best to survive and get home. So that's what they did. And there's something about women, uh, Corin, that I just the adaptability of women in situations where nobody tells you what to do. For example, when the Navy nurses surrendered to the Japanese a little earlier, they knew the Japanese were going to loot their medical supplies, and they wanted to keep their quinine because malaria was such a problem in the Philippines, and they quinine treated it. So they went into their medicine closet, and they mislabeled all their medicines. So the Japanese did come in to loot, and they walked off with what they thought was quinine, and it was sodium bicarbonate, baking soda. And the nurses kept their medication when they went into prison camp. You know, it's stories like that that are just amazing. So they had this agile mind without being told what to do. Yes, and I mean, that's the whole, that's the thing I've learned about women. The more I talk to people and meet them and think about them, I mean, women just have an amazing adaptability to wherever they are or what they're doing. And, um, you know, after the surrender um, in May of 1942, they were put into a prison camp called Santo Tomas Internment Camp in the city of Manila. It was a camp where the Japanese threw all the civilians they rounded up. And the nurses set up a hospital there, and they worked together, and they were just determined. They never gave up hope. They were determined that they were going to see this through. They thought they might be prisoners for six months, 12 months, well, a year would go by, another year, and they hung in there. They supported one another. They kept doing their work as nurses, and um, they all walked out of camp. And the chief nurse, the boss, was 60 years old when she walked out of camp. Wow. So, again, it just talks about the, the, the mental probably the physical strength, too, that these women had. They never gave up hope. They never, never thought that that they were going to lose. How did they keep that mindset going in such dire circumstances where they really weren't prepared for it? Um, they um, They were lucky that they were in a civilian prison camp. They were also really fortunate that the two women who led these nurses, one in the Army, one in the Navy, were 
extraordinary leaders, you know, the right person in the right place at the right time. They kept their group together. They, they kept a structure and a schedule of the day. And these nurses knew that somebody was looking after them, that they had, that, that they had a leader who really cared about them. And the other reason I think they managed to hold it together is, you know, we talk about women supporting one another you know, the whole idea of social support. But these women had little groups of friends, and they kept each other going. If a woman didn't feel like getting up because she was sick, um, they all they were all starving. They didn't have enough food or medicine. Um, if a woman didn't want to get up because she didn't feel like it, her friends would get her up, and they'd make sure that they sang happy birthday. I mean, they, they just pulled one another along, and it worked. And they were very proud of the fact that none of them died Many of them were very sick with the diseases of starvation, but not a one of them died. Wow, that's just incredible. Mm -hmm. And for them to realize that they were, it sounds like they were stronger together than to be separate. Absolutely. I mean, if you, you know, I, I did a lot of reading about women in the Pacific in World War II. And if, if women were, I mean, the group obviously was much stronger than being uh, alone and these groups, yeah, they really were life-saving to these women. And also the fact that when they were in prison camp, they kept working as nurses, and they knew that they were needed and appreciated. And that's a great motivator too to keep going through the day. People really needed them, so that kept them going too. But but one another, boy, I never saw such friendships as I saw between these women. So Elizabeth, in your research. Mm -hmm. Did you see the same kind of a structure with men who went through difficult times where they could really come together and, and, and be collective like that? You know, it, it, that's a really interesting question, Corn. because after um, I did this work on this book, I worked on Tears in the Darkness, which was about the men. And the men, no, the men did not have that leadership that the women had. And certainly the men had a couple of buddies that they, you know, helped and, and, and were very special, but they did not have this group structure in part because the men were put in a, they were treated differently by the Japanese, but no, the men did not come together like the women did. And I don't know if that's just a result of our gender and the fact that we do interact so much. I don't, I, that's a hard answer. And and why were they allowed to continue on to be nurses while they're in this camp? Well, when the Japanese found them, when these uh, when our American troops surrendered, they were befuddled. They didn't know what to do with these women. <laughs> there were no women in the Japanese military, and uh, they they just they just didn't know what to do with them. And they had all of these tens of thousands of troops to deal with, so. Um, I, what they did is they just gathered them up, put them in these prison camps, and then we're going to ignore them. And the nurses in this prison camp in Manila, there were like 4,000 people in this camp and tight areas. And you didn't have to be a genius to know that there were going to be people with health problems and there were going to be epidemics. So they just got together with some civilian doctors and they set this hospital up themselves. Um, the Japanese didn't care as long as they didn't bother the Japanese. They just kind of let the women do whatever they wanted. And and so besides those medical supplies that they stashed and they mm -hmm. um, misidentified, did they were how else did they treat people? Oh, oh well, again, this just this gets into just 
ingenuity here. Uh, some of the civilian doctors in Manila who were thrown into this camp had some supplies, but these women, they found they had someone tap rubber trees to make adhesive for bandages, which they made out of cut cloth. They needed um, suture material if people got cut, um, and they used hemp, or, or which they baked in an oven to sterilize. Um, they took roofing material and had it made into bedpans. I, I mean, it just goes on and on. They, it was the, the simplest of medical care, but it was effective. They used sunlight. Um, they used rice when people had GI problems. The most basic health care, but they did save lives. You know, that's just so incredible because now we're so reliant on Google right? I call us Googleizers. We have a problem, go Google it. You want to learn how to do something, go find a YouTube video, but Google it to find that video, right? And they didn't have that. I mean, they had what was there and to, it sounded like, did they do things based on trial and error or because somebody maybe had experience in something or they thought, how did that work? Well, you know, they knew some very basic things from um, growing up, not well to do, living on farms. They learned things in nursing school. Remember, healthcare wasn't very technologic in those days. So they, they learned some things from older practitioners and, and from their education. Um, and there was some trial and error. And a bunch of people put their heads together and said, how are we going to treat this? And they said, well, ultraviolet light works and we have one. Let's use it. So it was a matter of personal experience and professional experience. And they all knew that there was not a whole lot they could do for some people. So then they would just make them comfortable, like the elderly people with strokes and things like that. So do you think their willingness to kind of try things out? Because sometimes don't you see nowadays, right? And you work with, you're at a university, so you work with college students or graduate mm -hmm. students. And mm -hmm. we have the sense of, being afraid to fail, right? So there's, in some ways, it's like to have risk or to go try something, well, I may fail. Mm -hmm. Do you think mm -hmm. these women were like, well, look, we're already at the bottom. <laughs> what can we do? Well, that's right. They were at the bottom. And I would, when I would talk to them and I'd ask them questions like, why did you keep going? Why didn't you just get angry? Why didn't you just, you know, throw up your hands? And they said, we had no option. We either kept going, tried things. If it didn't work, well, we tried. Um, and we, they just they kept going. But the, you just mentioned Google and earlier had mentioned communication. The one thing that bothered them most, and it wasn't their situation where, again, they all lost pounds, and um, was the fact that they couldn't get in touch with anybody back in America. And these women were missing in action for almost two years. Their parents, their friends, their siblings, their Pals, nobody knew if they were alive or dead, and that that bothered them more than anything. It's hard to believe today that you couldn't get word across the globe, but you really couldn't. <laughs> yes, we're so we're so connected in that way nowadays. <laughs> well, and you know, and back then too, because some of the stories that you write about these women, they did spend a lot of time cultivating those relationships, writing letters back home, you know, mm -hmm. and and so that part was really important into. To not be able to do that, that must have pulled on their heartstrings so much. Terribly. And what bothered them is not only couldn't they get word home, mostly to their parents. I mean, they loved their parents. But also, 
um, what bothered them is they knew the suffering that they were causing their parents back here, not knowing what had happened to their daughters. And, and, and that just weighed very heavily on them because you could see from the early letters back home how close most of them were to their parents. And, I mean, imagine knowing that your mother and father are falling apart because you can't say, hey, mom, I'm okay. You know, it was tough. Did they have guilt? Because here, you know, the reason they went was for this life of adventure, right? It was, hey, mm-hmm. let's go to some tropical island and do some work during the day and get dressed in our evening gowns for nighttime, mm-hmm. right? And be around some handsome gentlemen. And did they have guilt for their decision of going into doing this? There was a little bit of guilt about what they did to their family. Um, not, I mean, but, you know, again, these women are just realist and there was nothing that they could have done. One story just stands out. There was one woman from Massachusetts, um, Cassie. Her parents were Italian immigrants. Um, and when she signed up to go to the Philippines, her mother, who was a, a widow then, um, said, I don't want you to go. It's too far away. And she said, you know, Mom, when you came to America, you didn't know what you were facing. So please give me an opportunity to have an adventure, too. So Cassie. Cassie goes off to the Philippines, becomes a prisoner, gets liberated, and as she gets back to the States, she learned that her mother had died three days before liberation and never lived to know that her daughter lived. And that bothered Cassie the rest of her life. Wow. Yeah. Did she regret going and signing up? You know, none of the, actually, I, I, I'm, none of the women, I actually asked them, I said, are you sorry you did this? Not one woman said, I regret it. They said they learned life lessons that they never would have learned any other way. They met people they never would have met any other way. And they felt that they got out of it a little wise, much wiser than they were going in. So it's interesting. They're what, they did not regret it. Wow, that's just incredible. Yeah. Because this is something that they all chose to do, is at least go yeah. to that place, not to be yeah. part of this war. Yeah. But I want to go back to something you said about they were doing medicine in the jungle. And isn't it true, like even the doctors, I mean, they, they weren't these trauma surgeons, correct? They, they, correct. they weren't prepared for right. this attack. Yeah, there wasn't even anything known as trauma in those days. And these were, uh, you know, military physicians and nurses. And before the war, you know, they'd do an appendectomy or somebody would get hurt in a boxing match or fall off a horse or something. So then all of a sudden, I mean, literally in a week's time, they're, they're having horrendous injuries from battle, from gunshot, bayonet, bombings. And not only that, but Everybody on Bataan was starving. When MacArthur moved everyone there to get out of the city of Manila, they left food and medicines behind. So people were fighting or working and working in operating rooms and going on maybe one meal a day, catching malaria and dengue fever. And in this environment, these nurses, along with the physicians, took care of sick and ill patients. They were well-trained, though, I have to say, not in trauma, but they knew what, the, I mean, they knew what they were doing. They'd had experience in nursing students and in hospitals, so they did the best they could. They may have been well-trained, but they probably, they weren't well-trained in how to do it in the jungle. No, <laughs> no. 
But, you know, they, they adapted. One of the things, I mean, like they'd get needles and they'd have to reuse them. So they'd boil them and then they'd, they'd sharpen them on rocks. Um, and the clothes story with these women is interesting. They had to wear their nice little white nurses' uniforms before the war. Well, that doesn't work too well when you're in the jungle. So they got Army Air Corps coveralls, and they put them on, but they were too big for them. So they brought the, they were these women were in battle, but they were always very aware of their appearance. So they 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 made them fit, and I think they were the first group of military military women ever wear what we now call fatigues in the field. But they get into the jungle and they say, okay, we're here. Um, they kept thinking reinforcements were going to come now. So that kept them going. And then when they finally heard as the battle got into its last month that they were not going to be, you know, saved, things got a little dicey. But the women said, we just focused on the patients because as bad as we felt, these poor guys with these wounds and these illnesses were much worse than us. You know, Elizabeth, as you talk about this, I think about Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, yeah. And and he talks about, you know, when they, they'd they heard that the war was ending or the war had ended and then there was yeah. hope. And and the the difference between the people that it was over the winter Christmas holidays and as each day passed and we got, they got closer to the new year and the rescuers didn't come and the freedom didn't come. People who lost hope wound up dying. They they let go, and he believed that it was that hope that helped them keep them going until they did get freed. Oh, that is so true, and and his book was very influential um, to me with this work. Uh, and and I heard this from dozens of people in uh, the POW camps. If you gave up hope. If you didn't want to think about tomorrow, you, you literally, it's called a will to survive and you lose that and people die, you know, and, and these women, if they ever felt that their, their girlfriends wouldn't, they'd push them along, you know, they wouldn't let them get too down. Um, but that's absolutely true. You, you've got to want to survive when you're in the situation. You have to be smart, not, you know, how to deal with the enemy. You have to have a sense of humor, and you need luck. I mean, luck plays a role in it, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems like, you know, because one of the things that he talks about is that to have meaning is to be of service. Mm-hmm. And it really seems like for these women and all of them to survive, that mm-hmm. being of service helped foster that hope, did it not? I, I think that, that the fact that they were able to continue to work as nurses particularly in like 1945 now we're talking, um, two, three, four people a day were dying in these camps from starvation. First, the old people and, and the parents died because they'd give their food to their children. Um, and these nurses were all swollen with beriberi. But, but I think they had this mission. They had a reason to get up and work every day and a reason to keep going I happen to think the fact that they kept working was very important to the, their survival. They, well, they were, yeah, you know, women like to be needed and wanted, and they sure were. What's berry berry? Oh, sure. That's when you don't eat enough vitamin uh, uh, thiamine. And again, these there was no protein, there was no carbohydrate, there was fat. I mean, they basically ate mush. And one of the things that the body does without thiamine. It affects your eyesight um, and vitamin B. You start to swell up. You lose your muscles. 
Um, and um, there's two kinds of beriberi where you get really swollen and you look like the Pillsbury Doughboy or dry where you're walking around like a skeleton and every step is painful because the nerve impulses are all messed up. Um, so you look awful and you feel terrible and you have no, no energy at all. Um, you know, these young women, and they all had beriberi. Um, they'd get up in the morning and they'd have to go down a staircase and they'd have to plan their day very carefully that they carried everything with them and rested on the landing because they knew they couldn't make it up the stairs again till the night. They didn't even have enough energy. But they still went to work and took care of patients. They'd, they'd change a dressing or take a temperature. They'd sit down and rest in between patients, and then they'd get up and do it again. Wow. How long were their days? Um, well, um, in the beginning when they were in camp, like in 1942 and 43, you know, they would work like an eight-hour shift in a hospital. But as they got sicker, the shifts became shorter because they simply couldn't do it. But they all worked. You know, they, it's not that anybody said, forget it, I'm not doing this anymore. So, you know, you'd work about four hours or as long as you could. And, uh, yeah, so, so that's what they did. And when, when they were in the civilian camp, were, in, were they actually in a building working or were they outside? What was the structure like? Um, in the civilian camp, there was a big, big university building that's still there today, which is amazing, where they housed everybody. Uh, most of the uh, women prisoners. So it was like, imagine sharing a classroom with like 24 other women. Um, and, the, and the other thing, and I'll get to the hospital in a minute, which your listeners might like, there weren't that many showers or bathrooms. And they had 700 women sharing one shower and bathroom. And oh. I've never figured out how they did that. <laughs> Wow. I, I know when they used to take a shower, they used to stand in a circle and you'd walk under the water and out of the water. Under the, I mean, so they did things like that, but I've never figured that one out. Um, but what they did right outside, right across a little street, was a, a convent for nuns that was uh, not being used. So the nurses and the physicians just took over that convent and made it into a hospital for the prison camp. Again, the Japanese gave them nothing, didn't do anything, but, you know, they just let them go ahead and do that. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the work piece seems like really the important piece, and mm -hmm. I, I really invite the listeners to really consider, you know, when your back is against the wall and we think that we have to have all these things mm -hmm. to be able to keep moving forward, hear these women, what incredible evidence right? These women who had nothing except each other mm -hmm. and to be of service to other people. And that's what sounds like gave them their resilience and their hope to keep showing up every day. One of the questions I would always ask them is, um, how do you think I would have done? You know, you wonder, you talk to these women and you say, would I have been able to do this? Would I have been able to survive in the jungle, surrender to an enemy and go into a prison camp? And they'd look at me and they'd say, oh, yeah, sure, kid. I mean, that's what they used to call me. I mean, they just said, women don't realize the well of strength that we all have, which is true. And, and your readers should think about it. When your backs are against the wall, look, look what you did and look how you came out of it. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, women don't realize the well of strength that they have. No, 
they don't. They really don't. So with they so they go through this and they lost they started losing hope or people in the camp started losing hope that they weren't going to be rescued. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Well, you know, the nurses at this point were joking with one another and they were they there was a smuggled radio in this camp that the nurses didn't have access to, but they there were rumors in 1945 that the Americans were coming back, the Japanese were, were losing and so they knew that their salvation was nearby, but they just didn't know when. And they used to joke and say, well, who's going to get us first, the vultures or the United States Marine Corps? And one night in February, and the Japanese were just brutal to these prisoners at this point. They had curfew. They were living on maybe 500 calories a day. Um, people were dying. They had to, the Japanese were storing fuel. They all thought they were going to, if the Americans didn't come soon, that they were all going to be executed. But one night they were in their room, in their classroom, and there was a gate to this university and the gate came crashing down and tanks came in and they didn't know if they were Japanese or American tanks because the Japanese were holding military exercises in their camp at that point. So they're peering over the windowsill like they shouldn't. And the tanks came right up to this big building where they were all living. And uh, a pop pops up and a guy gets out and he looks up at the window and he said something so American they knew that they'd made it. He looked up and he waved to them and he said, hello, folks. And the nurses went crazy. Everybody just came down out of their room and surrounded the tanks. And one of the first things they saw was an American flag on the tank turret. And they hadn't seen one in three years. And they all started to sing, God bless America. It was apparently very moving. Um, But it was that quick that they went from being a prisoner in the afternoon to being a free woman in the morning. Wow. Mm-hmm. And do you think that that going through those tremendous hardships and then finally being rescued, do you think that cultivates the patriotism that we used to see in our country? Yes, yes it might. I mean, these women, they were very patriotic and they loved their country and they really, really appreciated what the men, the military men, what everybody did for them. But it wasn't um, a a blind patriotism. Like they were mad as hell. I don't even know if I can use that word on the radio at General MacArthur because MacArthur lied to them and, you know, set this whole tragedy up. So they loved their country deeply. They especially loved the men they served with. But they also could see some chinks in, in the whole story. And, yeah, people heard our parents or grandparents' generation, they knew what some of the men and women did in World War II, and that had to foster um, patriotism in this country. I mean, there was so much to be proud of, and there still is today, you know, but but it was very apparent in those days. So how long did it take for the women to get home and to be connected with their families once they got rescued? It was pretty quick. Um, they put them in uniforms, and there's a great photo in We Band of Angels of the uniforms just hanging off them. And they flew them home. They flew them to San Francisco to Letterman Army Hospital cause, or the Navy nurses to San Diego because they were sick and they needed health care. But they got to call their parents 
um, and and pretty soon. And most of them were home, I'm going to say, within a month of liberation, which was very jarring for them to go from not being able to make any decision and not knowing what's going to happen to you in the next two or three hours to all of a sudden being home in Georgia and mom saying, well, what do you want for dinner tonight? It was very difficult to go from being a POW to, to freedom. So, and they missed one another. It was a, it was a trying time for them at first, as thrilled as they were to be alive and be home. You know, Elizabeth, I think that's a great you made because so often, you know, whatever it may be, right, we may want something to be a certain thing. And when we get it, it may, and it could be really good, like for these women, Mm -hmm. that transition, that Mm re-entry can be really painful. Oh, it it, it can. And they helped one another. Most of the women did just fine. And the other thing when they finally got home is, um, you know, they what what we all take for granted and what they took for granted they never did the rest of their long lives like hot water soap you know um the ability to sit down and read a book um or go out to a store and buy a blouse i mean they really appreciated the little things that we take for granted mm-hmm. so so often you know we hear about and, and and I work with a lot of parents who are worried about scarring their children for the rest mm-hmm. of their lives, right? But here these women went through something very horrific. Mm-hmm. And were they one and half of filling lives after that? You know, the, a lot of the, the women, again, it's this generation of women. Most of them either uh, stayed um, single and, and had careers, although kind of short because they... They came home with TB and everything. and But there were a lot of women who got married and had children and became homemakers. Um, they never talked much about what happened to them because they felt that people wouldn't really understand or they'd only want to hear the funny stories. And so they kept everything, even from their own children, they didn't talk a lot about it. Um, one daughter said she remembers going into her mom's jewelry box to borrow something and saw her medals, you know, and didn't even realize about her military medals. And um, it's interesting. The, the uh, Some other things happened, though, after they came home. These two leaders that we spoke about earlier just did an amazing job with these women. And the Army nurse, the 60-year-old, they put her up for a very high military medal after they came home. And it went all through the chain of command, and it got denied at the last level because um, she was a woman and a nurse, and the men felt she didn't deserve this uh, medal for leadership. So after the first edition of We Band of Angels came out, some women in Washington got together, and they worked, and this nurse got her medal posthumously 65 years later. Wow. Yeah. Well, and, and and when I ask that question about fulfilling, it doesn't necessarily have to be in career, right? The fact that they go on and they're not forever scarred or limited, they can they can have a sense of peace or gratitude and still be fulfilled even yeah. after going through that horrific thing. And that's what it sounds like. It, yes, it does. And, and that's a really good point, Corinne. They, I, think, I think they had good lives. They would have said full lives, happy lives, but not a day went by that they didn't think about the war. Not a day. In some way, a little bit, a lot. But they, they again, no regrets. They had full lives. Um, but 
there was always that little cloud and shadow. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really important, you know, a piece of evidence again, because sometimes I do think that whether, you know, we, we, we have conditions these days, but we are resilient. We have, you know, mm-hmm. agility. We have so much that's in us, but we're afraid to fail or afraid to look bad, but, or afraid to make a mistake or, mm-hmm. and we have so much fear that's so much in our heads, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But these women who went through these horrific situations and circumstances, and they were able to have good lives afterwards. And I think that's an important takeaway for the listeners. It's a very important takeaway. And the other important takeaway that every one of them said to me, as long as I talk to them, is one of the things they learned, and they'd always say, don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> really, every one of them said that. That's what they learned. Don't. And I often say that to myself when, like so many of your listeners, you know, you have one of those days like, oh, and I just say, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. So that that's actually very important. No, that is really important. And we do take that for granted. And, mm-hmm. and we get caught up. It causes so much misery in our lives. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what were a couple things that you learned from your experience with interviewing and talking with all these incredible women? Well, in addition to what I just said, I think what I really learned first, uh, you know, I'm I'm not these women's generation. And, oh, you know, I didn't know if they would respond to me. But I learned that friendship and communication among women, it, it crosses generations. It really does. I mean, you can talk to, I could talk to a 16-year-old young woman or a 95-year-old woman. And that was very important to me to know that it's not age that, that, that keeps us apart. You know, we just have to make that step. And the other point that really has affected my life, and we've already talked about it, is never underestimate what a woman can do or a group of women can do. Never underestimate it. That's awesome. I have a question. So when you were saying Mm -hmm. friendship and communication and cross generations, are you Mm -hmm. saying that because somebody may be a different age or have a different experience, don't or different age doesn't mean that we still can't connect, that we still can't belong? Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely, you know, when I call, I mean, these women were like my mother's generation and I didn't know if they would just brush me aside or not take me seriously. And, but they, they didn't, we had wonderful conversations and a few of them became dear, dear friends of mine and I miss them all. Um, so yeah, don't, don't use age. You know, you can sit down and talk to have conversations and, and you learn a lot from talking to people much older or much younger than you. Yeah. People's stories are pretty incredible, aren't they? Oh yeah. Um, what I want to go back to when they came home and hear mm-hmm. their, you know, their health had been just so ravaged. What happened? Like, did they, did that limit them in their lives or were they over, able to overcome it? Well, this is, uh, they overcame as best they could. Some of them couldn't. Young women died of tuberculosis in the 1960s. The older women died very quickly. But here's, the reason it's hard to answer this question is that when they got home and they got out of the military or moved on, the government forgot about them. And they did studies of the male POWs in Europe and the Pacific. They never studied these women. So we have no idea what the long-term impact of starvation and stress was on their 
fertility, on their health care. We just don't know. So uh, what I'm saying to you is what I've gleaned from talking to them, but what an opportunity we missed from uh, being able to, you know, see how did they get along when they get home? How did they have fulfilled lives? We lost a lot of that information over the years. Hopefully we've learned from that. I hope so. And and, and I hope, yeah, I hope that women um, write down their stories, talk to one another, share their stories with their children and their, you know, just, just keep, keep the conversation going. So with this, these women and their connections so important and they come home and they're spread out all over the United States, Mm -hmm. were they able to maintain their friendships through the years? They were, I mean, again, but they did this themselves. Um, One of the um, more senior army nurses, Josie Nesbitt, um, who lived to be 99 years old, every Christmas and every birthday, she sent her girls, as she called them, a card. They, They did keep in touch with one another, but it was very quiet and just among themselves. The first reunion that they ever had was 40 years after liberation, when a woman working for the Veterans Administration thought, we should celebrate these women. So it took 40 years for any official recognition to come to them. Wow. Did they feel a sense of loss when they did go home and not to have these women, you know, side by side with them? Yeah, yeah, they they definitely missed one another, although they did move on with their lives. But, um, yeah, they, they missed that camaraderie. And they did the best they could on the phone, writing letters, did visit, you know, they kept up the friendships. But in the military, when you leave, you do miss that camaraderie because it's not there's not anything exactly like it in civilian life. Mm-hmm. No, and and there's a purpose. There's a common purpose that people get pulled together, right? And um, how do you keep that going? And back then, That's phones right. were so expensive. That's right. Right. I mean, that was very, very expensive. Now we get on Skype. We, you know, we have cell phones. We're texting. We have Facebook. We have so yeah. many ways to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so incredibly expensive, and that could be a hindrance for a lot of these women. Mm-hmm. So, and and but they always there were photos of them that the government did. You know, they had them sell war bonds, and they had some publicity photos. And they're just at a prison camp, and there's pictures of a woman putting on lipstick or, you know, eating ice cream. And I would say to them, God, weren't you like annoyed? And they said, no, 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 no. Every day, we're just so happy to be alive for the rest of our lives. We, we, again, we didn't care that, you know, they used us to sell war bonds and do things. We were just happy to be alive and home. So that was another side of it too. Did you find that they have they, they were truly, you know, we have this in our culture, this like quest for happiness and this quest for happiness. And, um, mm-hmm. and then we have commercials that tell us buy this car and we'll be happy. But yeah. do you think that they really had this inner understanding of what happiness to maybe, you know, people in our culture today? I, I think that their sense of happiness um, involved you know, being safe and secure and content. Um, You know, again, because they were just so glad they survived, being happy was nice, but it wasn't really important to them. 
Mm-hmm. I know that sounds very strange, but that's how I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, they were alive. They could take a hot bath. <laughs> that, that made them happy. You know, they had more than uh, one pair of worn out shoes. That So, you know, with, with, what brought them contentment and happiness was real different than you and me and, you know, people today. Well, it sounds like they lived the extraordinary with the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Really, they really just appreciated the hot water, the the fact yeah. that you can go to the store and get a you know a carton carton of milk. Yeah, you can exactly. meet your needs. And and you know these women though had that, that 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 affected their happiness and their fulfillment. I mean, they saw something that you and I ho- really will never see and hopefully won't see. They saw the best of mankind. You know, mm-hmm. people helping one another in these. And the worst of mankind with what some the Japanese did, um, and so they were they were wise. I, I just have to say that they 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 had a wisdom about life, and they knew what was important and wasn't important. So I, I looked on these women as very wise people. So Elizabeth, as we wrap up, a couple uh-huh. of takeaways for the listeners today. Well, um, I'm just. Um, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't underestimate what women um, can do singly or in a group. Um, appreciate what you have um, because it's a it, it, and whatever you're doing today, it can always be a lot worse. <laughs> How's that? That's great. Well said. <laughs> My guest today is Elizabeth Norman, and her book is We Band of Angels. Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being a guest today and sharing these stories of these women. My pleasure, Corin. Thank you so much for having me on and letting me talk about this. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, If that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.